He was there in the early days of television. It was all live, all live, and in front of an audience. They'd come to you in the, in the last 10 minutes and say, cut, scene 42. <laughs> <laughs> you just did it. You didn't even know what they were talking about. Oh, I, it was madness. It was madness. And every show was like that. She was there in the early days of cinema. That was really fun. That was great adventure. I made these for Vitagraph pictures, and they were all made out of doors. We used bank buildings for our homes and all kinds of things. We were supposed to be <laughs> great. noble, rich people. Coming up today, two of the most interesting characters I ever met. Actors Tony Randall and Helen Hayes. We remember them on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp with Bob Smith, the place to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. If you're lucky, you get to meet some very interesting characters in life. They come in all stripes, teachers, bosses, co-workers, members of your own family. Two of the most interesting folks I ever met were through work. They were well-known actors who knew how to tell a great story. They both had their start in live theater. One ended up as a TV star in television's The Odd Couple. The other, the first lady of the American theater, also dabbled in serious films. But to modern audiences, she's best known for a minor comic role, a part she milked to perfection, outshining everyone else in an all-star disaster film in 1970. The actors are Tony Randall and Helen Hayes. Neither is with us today, but they deserve to be remembered. I met both of them as a young radio reporter. I caught up with Tony Randall when he was brought to the rolling hills of southwest Wisconsin to help open the American Players Theater. Today, the American Players Theater is the second largest outdoor theater devoted to the classics, works by the likes of Shakespeare, Anton Chekhov, and George Bernard Shaw. But in 1977, American Players Theater was just a dream of its founders, Charles Bright, Annie Accio-Grosso, and Randall Duck Kim. Randall Duck Kim later went on to fame in Matrix and John Wick action films. He was American Players' artistic director for its first 15 years, and you'll hear his voice later on in the feature we're about to play. Tony Randall was the big name that the founders brought in to help launch their first season. He was known for theater, TV, music, and his comic antics on The Tonight Show. The venue was a press conference at Spring Green, Wisconsin, in a restaurant designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Interviewing Tony Randall in that beautiful setting turned out to be something of a minefield for me. Even though I arrived with well-researched questions, I soon found myself Tony Randall's comic foil, his punching bag, in front of other reporters. All your information is wrong. Is <laughs> yes. Everything you've got is wrong. The ribbing was good-natured, but it was the only interview I ever left thinking, well, that was embarrassing, and it's all on tape. What the heck am I going to do with this? 
Fortunately, I think I succeeded in making lemonade out of quite a few lemons. And I hope that you, too, get some chuckles at my expense as we remember Tony Randall. Oh, the perils of interviewing a celebrity. A case in point, actor Tony Randall. I had always heard those old stories that you shouldn't believe everything you read about a movie star or a television personality because too many press agents have been too eager to get their clients' names into the newspapers. And to do that, they've made up stories about them. Before you knew it, the truth was stretched way out of shape. So I've always steered away from the fan magazines and the tabloids whenever I've prepared questions for a celebrity. For Tony Randall, I wouldn't trust a gossip magazine or a newspaper tabloid. After all, this was Tony Randall, that quick-witted star of the stage and screen, radio and television, a man who was comfortable doing Shakespeare or being Felix Unger. No, this required some serious research. I made my way to the public library and found myself staring at a series of imposing volumes called Current Biography. Surely here I would find what I was looking for, that tidbit of information I could use to pry open the mind of Tony Randall. I stayed in the library for some time, meticulously copying the more colorful facts from the Current Biography article and the Saturday Evening Post and Time magazine. I felt very well prepared as I braced myself and launched the first question at the Tony Randall press conference. I had the truth and I was ready for the actor. My information was solid, trustworthy, and dependable. Unfortunately, nothing could have been further from the truth. I understand that apparently you uh, had uh, acting in your blood a long time ago because a teacher of yours sent a letter to your mother when you were in Tulsa talking about you making faces. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong? You got that story wrong. That was my sister. That's the, that's the God's truth. My sister used to go like that. She did. The teacher wrote a letter to my mother that, that Edna makes faces. She used to stretch her face uh, that way. But you never yeah. did that? No, no. Oh, well, no. We just won't believe the biographies from now on. No. Nor the fiction that comes your way every now and then. His sister? Well, that's strange. Those imposing-looking volumes said it was, it was him, Tony Randall. I let another reporter ask the next question, and then when I'd summoned up my courage, I looked down at my sheet and tried again. When you were 18, you were on Broadway with Ethel Barrymore in The Corn is Green, I understand. That must have been quite a large step for you to be rather young. All your information is wrong. <laughs> yes. Everything you've got is wrong. Suddenly, all those imposing reference books were looking awful small in my mind, but the inaccuracy was thankfully a minor one, and I felt much better when Tony Randall said... I, I wasn't 18. Oh, how old I was were you? About 20, 21. Uh, me. 21, I suppose. It was the corner screen, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put my questions from those less-than-imposing volumes in my pocket and proceeded from other sources, and that elusive success I'd been looking for finally came to me. I asked Tony Randall about his radio work. In his early days, he appeared on such radio soap operas as Reggie and I Love a Mystery. And we asked him if he, like some other actors, looked down on radio drama as a low form of art. I surely did. Did you? Yes. What did you do? It was the only game in town, so to speak. If you didn't have a Broadway show, then you had nothing unless you could get a radio show. There was nothing else. Today, actors can be in off-Broadway. They uh, can do commercials. There are other ways that you can prostitute yourself and, <laughs> and uh, at least make a living. But in those days, there was nothing 
except the occasional radio show or the Broadway show. The Broadway show generally lasts a week or two weeks. Most Broadway shows are flops. So unless you had radio to keep you going, you starved. Tony Randall's initial opinion of television wasn't much higher than his view of radio work, but he became a star on television through his appearances on the Wally Cox program, Mr. Peepers. We asked Tony Randall how he took the part of Harvey Westcott. I just was asked, uh, and I tried to get out of it. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I, that was the turning point in my life, and uh, I was directing something that, at that time. I was very busy directing a little opera off-Broadway called Down in the Valley, beautiful opera by Kurt Weill. I was just too busy, and I asked them to get somebody else for the part in Mr. Peepers, and Fred Coe refused. He said, no, you're the only one I, I want. It was only a one-shot. And they liked me, and they kept writing it in, and that established me as an actor. Tony Randall was busy in the early days of television. He appeared on Alcoa Theater, the soap opera One Man's Family. He even acted on the children's television show Captain Video. Another actor on that show was Jack Klugman, and Randall and Klugman later teamed up for the successful 1970 comedy TV series The Odd Couple. But Tony Randall says there was one main difference that made his work in the Mr. Peeper series more fun than The Odd Couple. It was all live, all live, and in front of an audience. We had 3,000 people in the audience every week. Yeah. I was younger then. <laughs> yeah, during the three-year run of uh, Mr. Peepers, I did three Broadway shows. Wow. I don't understand how I... How did you take... I don't know how I did it. <laughs> but we all used to do those things. Uh -huh. It was more fun then, I'll tell you that, the live TV. Because of the possibility of errors? That's exactly right. Yeah, and you had to be good. <laughs> you didn't have the tape and all of that like you had to do. That's right. And also, they never really had the timing of a show. Today, they make a show and then cut it to fit whatever the time is. Say, a half-hour show is 26 minutes, let's say. The rest is commercials. Well, the, then they were just timing it on the air, and they'd come to you in the, in the last 10 minutes and say, Cut! Scene 42! <laughs> <laughs> you just did it. You just, didn't even know what they were talking about. You just... They realized they were long, and they had to cut three minutes out of the show, but they wouldn't realize it until the last ten minutes of the show. Oh, I, it was madness. It was madness. And every show was like that. Tony Randall's opinion of television is still not the highest. Following the cancellation of The Odd Couple, Randall won an Emmy for his portrayal of Felix Unger. And he made one of the shortest, and he feels one of the best, Emmy Award speeches on record. It was a needling jab at the TV industry. He told the audience, I'm glad I won. And then he added, and I wish I had a job. If you change the subject to the theater, the Shakespearean theater, you'll find something that Tony Randall seems to love without reservation. The Saturday Evening Post once quoted Tony Randall as saying, Shakespeare wrote for a rough audience, a crowd of thieves, murderers, and prostitutes. And to keep that audience entertained, he had to inject humor, action, and lust. That's exactly right, sure. Do you think that audiences today, do they realize that when they listen? Well, today we're used to even rougher stuff, but only today. For at least 200 years, all the rough stuff was taken out, mostly by a man named Bowdler or Bowdler, who gave his name to the English language, Bowdlerizing something. Oh. But it was mainly in censoring Shakespeare that this was done, because it really is full of very, very raunchy stuff, very, very filthy stuff. <laughs> is that what yes, you like? It always gets a laugh, yes. You hear, yes. This was the first time that was ever done. Uh, the French never played Shakespeare until about a hundred years ago. They hated him because they thought this was impure, that a comedy should be a comedy, and a tragedy should be a tragedy. But to have low characters, comic characters, in a tragedy was to them the utmost vulgarity, and by their definition, bad art. 
and they simply couldn't understand it. By many standards, it is bad art, but he was Shakespeare, That's, it's different. He could do anything, and he had a point. Not only was the audience rough in those days, but the theater itself sounds like the kind of place you wouldn't want to find yourself caught in. They got in for a penny, and they stood. If we had to go through what Shakespeare's audience went through, maybe we wouldn't go to the theater. In the back of the house, there was a barrel that was for everybody's use <laughs> during the performance. That's the truth. That's the truth. It was a bawdy time, mind you. When discussing Shakespeare, though, Tony Randall can be quite outspoken, even about as great an actor as Laurence Olivier. His opinion came out when Randall was asked if he would ever want to play Mark Antony in Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, Antony, no. Antony is beyond my powers. And it's beyond the powers of almost everybody I've ever seen do it. It was one of the few times I thought Olivier was thoroughly bad. It was, <laughs> it was beyond his powers. Um, not really. At the time he did it, he was concentrating on the wrong things. He was extremely disappointing. And the real reason was that at that time, his only interest was in presenting Vivian Lee. He was, yes, he was determined to make her the greatest actress the world had ever known. Well, that was just not to be. Audiences didn't want it, and uh, I don't think she wanted it. I don't think she had that enormous faith in herself that it takes to become a really great actor. And he wasn't paying enough attention to his own acting. And it showed. We'll have more of The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith in just a moment. We return now to The Off-Ramp and our interview with Tony Randall. Even when discussing Shakespeare, Tony Randall, the humorist, can come out. Randall was asked to recite some of his favorite lines from Shakespeare. To be or not to be, that is the bare bodkin that makes calamity of so long life. For who would fardels bear till Burnham would do come to Dunsinane? But that the fear of something after death makes us rather fling the arrows of outrageous fortune than fly to others we know not of. Some of your listeners and viewers may want to know who wrote those lines. That's Mark Twain. Yeah, Mark Twain deliberately butchered a lot of Shakespeare just like that. Yeah. Something was itching in my pocket. It was those questions. Those questions from those biographical books which by now would be imposing to no one. I'd had so much trouble with those questions and so much luck with the other ones that by now I felt daring. I felt brave. I pulled out the list. I found the strangest question I could find. Could it be true? Had Tony Randall ever been a secret agent in the service of our government? I have information here that during World War II you were in the Signal Corps and then you delivered classified documents in Washington, D.C. Is that true? That's true. <laughs> I was a messenger boy. That's right. I had to run around Washington. Hand you had to be a trustworthy person. with a Classified documents. Well, that, that was it, yeah. That last question seemed to do it for Tony Randall. I don't know what I did, but someone else said, maybe we can have one more question, and Tony Randall said, No! No! That's enough. Let's go. Maybe after looking at the situation from his point of view, I should have titled this, The Perils of Being a Celebrity. Tony Randall, A Case in Point. <laughs> As I tried to do with most people I met, I, I wrote to Tony Randall after that encounter, sending him a copy of the feature I put together and asking him for an autographed picture. He complied with this humorous note. Dear Bob, thanks for that really funny cassette. That's very thoughtful, and I enjoyed it. 
but I must tell you, your facts are still not right. I was never in Captain Video. Jack Klugman and I first appeared together on Appointment with Adventure sometime around 1955. All the best, Tony Randall. Eight days later, I met our next featured guest, the late great Helen Hayes. Word came into our radio station that Miss Hayes was on a Mississippi River cruise aboard the historic steamboat, the Delta Queen. She was going to be stopping in our city of Dubuque, Iowa, the next day to take a look at the town's pride and joy, the Five Flags Theater, the former Orpheum Theater, built in the early 1900s by famous theater architects Rap and Rap. Did the station want to cover it? Well, I volunteered, ran to the library to do some quick research, then the next afternoon headed to the theater where I recorded the following feature. I knew Helen Hayes had starred as the little old lady in a recent disaster film, Airport, and I knew she had a great career in live theater. But until my research, I didn't know she'd been a child actress in silent films. Today, in the 21st century, there's no one alive who can remember what it was like to make silent movies in 1910. But former child star Helen Hayes could, and that memory alone makes this next interview a treasure to me. Great old theaters are loved by audiences, but they are loved even more by the actors and actresses who perform in them. That truth was evident when the woman known as the First Lady of the American Stage walked through the doors of Dubuque's Five Flags Theater, a former vaudeville house built by theater architects Rap and Rap in 1910. Now you have to come to Dubuque to see a really yes. beautiful theater. Isn't that astonishing? We've torn down so many of our beautiful theaters in New yes. York. This one came close to getting torn down. Yes, but somebody here had the interest in civic grandeur. Helen Hayes was in town on a stopover of the great riverboat, the Mississippi Queen, and while in Dubuque, the famous Broadway actress and movie star took a tour of the city and the theater. Oh, I think it's so beautiful, and I'm so proud that I made the acquaintance of Dubuque, <laughs> because any city that does this for the theater is beloved of me, I can tell you. What a great thing you've done. To remind you of the theaters you played when uh, days when the Majestics and the Orpheum? Yes, indeed. I played back and forth across this country so many times. Who knows but I may have played in this theater. <laughs> I did get into many one-night stand tours, and perhaps I played Dubuque. Does anybody know whether I played here in, in Victoria, Regina, or Mary of Scotland, or any of those long tours that I had in 46 weeks? of Victoria Regina, we played 75 cities. In the past, I played in some very pretty theaters. I don't think any more beautiful than this. I really don't remember anything any prettier than this. I wish I could just scoop it up and take it to New York. Ah, <laughs> oh, superb. The tour of the theater prompted memories of her career in show business, a career that started 75 years earlier when she was just five years old. Yes. Mm -hmm. Then at nine years old, I think, you were on Broadway. I was on Broadway. <laughs> you must have been a young sensation. Took me four whole years to get to Broadway. Think of that. <laughs> you must have been quite a young sensation at the time, sort of like uh, like the girl who plays Annie, uh, people like that. On stage. Uh, yes, I was. I really was. 
Whenever I doubt myself as an actress, in the past when I was more active in the theater, whenever I'd have terrible black doubts of my abilities, I think, well, look at what happened when you were first starting, when you were a child. People recognize something there. Mm -hmm. So that would hearten me. So even Helen Hayes has doubts at times. Oh, you bet. And um, you look for any straw you can clutch. <laughs> it was interesting to hear Frank Sladek, the Five Flags Theater director, and Helen Hayes talk about performing before a live audience. The poor actors of today really have a hard time. They? they have a hard time. They have to use those uh, amplifiers, uh -huh. which are bad for, for the sound of the voice. We actors in my day were famous for our beautiful voices. People always <laughs> talk about the voices of all of us. And um, all voices sound alike now. Donald Duck. Have you noticed that? I agree with you. I agree. I think it's a real problem with American actors in particular. Yes, yes. They were all amplified. Everybody mm -hmm. has those little things stuck oh, to them, yeah. little grasshoppers sitting on the chest. And I think it's made them lazy. I tell you who's got lazy from it. Who's that? Audiences. They don't listen so well. Uh -huh. And then they complain that they can't hear the actors, but it's because they don't try enough. However, I think the movies have let us down with the poor fare we've had. And television is almost unendurable to the, right. to the world at large. It really is. You I know, agree. people don't enjoy it anymore. It's just failed us. So, back to the theater. Back to the theater, back to the theater indeed. But as you know, Helen Hayes was in the movies. In fact, she appeared in films in four different periods of her life. Her career as a movie star started in the silent days, in a film called Jean and the Calico Doll, a two-reeler made in 1910. She was nine years old at the time, and already a star. I can remember that. Can you? Uh, I remember. That was really fun. That was great adventure. because I made these for Vitagraph pictures, which were made in the East. Uh, over in Fort Lee was uh, the uh, studio. New Jersey, right? Mm-hmm. And they were all made out of doors. Uh, the sets were just, uh, had no roof, you see, so that the sunlight could delight you. And... Um, and, and then when we had to have location shots, we couldn't afford, even though they were the great Vitagraph pictures, they couldn't afford to uh, pay for them or they wouldn't pay for them, and I don't know. But anyway, we'd go and pick a beautiful house. They'd set up the camera on the tripod. It was one of those hand crank cameras. And uh, this is about 1909 or 10. And they'd, um, the cameraman would rush out, and we actors would rush up to the door of this house and come out and be walking away from our beautiful home while they cranked us. And then that we'd get out of there just as the butler or the maid or something. <laughs> oh, you did it without permission then. Oh, sure. <laughs> we stole it. We did this all the time. We were just always scouting around, getting all these there. Well, this must have been great adventure places. and fun huh? then. Sure. We used bank buildings for our homes and all kinds of things. We were supposed to be <laughs> great. No rich people. Helen Hayes made only a few more silent films, preferring to work on the stage instead. Her last silent was a 1920 film called Babs. In the meantime, she'd become a superstar on Broadway. In 1928, she married Charles MacArthur, a former newspaper man turned playwright. He signed a contract with MGM and went on to become one of the most successful movie screenwriters of the 1930s, writing such films as The Front Page and The 20th Century with Ben Hecht, another former newspaper man. Helen went with him to Hollywood. I tried to go back there and be a, in the films, the talkies, uh, when I was too old to uh, learn new tricks. You won an Academy Award on your first talkie film. That's right. And I did a few others. But uh, 
I did about 10 pictures. But I wasn't happy when I said I was too old to learn new tricks. I never liked what I did on the uh, screen. I was always unhappy about it. She may not have been pleased, but movie fans have fondly remembered some of her MGM films. One person reminded Miss Hayes of a touching emotional scene from Anastasia, but Helen Hayes remembers it differently. I didn't really care for that so much because I knew the story behind that scene. Ingrid and I had made that. It took us a week to make that scene. Uh, bits and bits, little mm -hmm. snippets of it, you know, each day, over and over and over and over. And then we were called in and put in a dark room to watch the film being shown and follow our lips and do the sound again, mm -hmm. what they call looping in the films. We had to do that whole emotional scene again. Uh, sitting in a dark projection room, watching ourselves on the screen and following it. Well, all true emotion was out the window, I assure you. <laughs> but I don't know. In 1935, Helen Hayes left Hollywood again, and she had her greatest triumph on the Broadway stage in the mid-1930s. She came back to films again in the 50s, and most people remember her as the little old lady in the film Airport. She won another Academy Award for that, this time for Best Supporting Actress. The year was 1970. Helen Hayes became interested in the part through her friend, Laura Mako, a former actress and now interior designer. She introduced me to the producer, Ross Hunter, who's her great friend. I was out there visiting her, minding my business and having no idea of making films. And she put the novel beside my bed uh, to read. And she said, just take a, a close look at Mrs. Quonset. And I did, and I was uh, gone. I was sunk. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't in Hollywood when she heard she had won an Academy Award. As a matter of fact, it was a quite different setting, but still, there was a celebration. I was rehearsing at Catholic University in um, Washington, D.C. to do, um, was it Long Day's Journey in Tonight? Mm -hmm. Yes, the O'Neill play with the drama department of uh, that university and uh, came word that I had uh, one. It came on the air, of course. They were showing it on the television. And the whole university came, all the girls in that dormitory. I was living in a dorm. They all came in their uh, dressing gowns, old flannel dressing gowns and things, <laughs> with lily cups full of <laughs> red wine and whatever they could locate. Oh, and we had a party in the hall <laughs> celebrating me winning that. That was fun. Movies have been fun, but they've not been the great love in the life of Helen Hayes. The greatest love has always been the theater, where a performer has an audience, a live audience. And it was a magic moment, in fact a historic one, when this great actress, Helen Hayes, climbed to the stage of Dubuque's Five Flags Theater and recited to a small audience, Shakespeare. This is from Twelfth Night, and it is dedicated to Dubuque and this beautiful theater and it's paraphrased for the occasion. I'll make me a willow cabin at your gate and call upon my soul within the house. Write loyal cantons of contemned love and sing them loud even in the dead of night. Hello your name to the reverberate hills and make the babbling gossips of the air cry out, Dubuque. Oh, you will not rest between the elements of air and earth till you've adopted me. <laughs> Helen Hayes passed away in 1993. Her career spanned more than 80 years. 
She's one of only 15 actors who have won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. Six years after that interview, President Ronald Reagan gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civilian honor. And since 1984, the annual Helen Hayes Awards have recognized excellence in professional theater. Tony Randall died on May 17, 2004, after a career spanning 60 years. He's an Emmy Award winner who received six Golden Globe and six Primetime Emmy Award nominations. He was also a mainstay of talk shows on TV. And on the May 9, 1990 episode of The Tonight Show, he bragged, This is my 95th time on this show. He founded the National Actors Theater at Pace University in New York City. Well... That's today's podcast. Hope you enjoyed looking back on these two great storytellers, Tony Randall and Helen Hayes, and that you'll join me again next time on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin.